Hey there, real quick before we begin today's episode of Growing Pulse Crops, I have a small but very important request of you. Please, if you could, just I want you to hit pause for just a few minutes to take our audience survey. The link for it is in the very top of the show notes to this episode, so no matter what podcast player or website you're listening to this from, it should be right there at the top of the screen. You see, the show is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors, and they like to know if their money is going to good use, to productive, valuable content. And also, producer Dr. Audrey Kalisle and I like to know how we're doing and if we can make this more interesting or more valuable for you as well. So please take just a few minutes now and click that link for the audience survey in the show notes to give us your feedback. It'll only take a few minutes and I promise it is very much appreciated. This is Growing Pulse Crops and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today we're talking Montana pulse production and harvest considerations with farmer Terry Onvik. I think I think the more residue out there, it prevents uh, erosion, but it also creates a little microclimate, little environment for them to grow up into. I prefer a furrow drill. It leaves a V, you know, when you plant it, because I think it also allows that little microclimate when you grow up on this double. These, these varieties have tendrils that tie them together, and so that helps to hold them upright as well. So I, I guess the, in my mind, the more stubble, the better. Terry Onvik farms in Sheridan County, Montana, which is in the extreme northwest corner of the state, about 25 miles from North Dakota and 20 miles to Canada. He was born and raised there and came back after earning a plant and soil science degree at Montana State University. In his first career, he spent 31 years as the Sheridan County Extension Agent, a position he retired from in 2010, and he's been farming full-time ever since. Today, he farms mostly Durham and dry peas, along with his two older brothers and his son. Terry and I talk about the important role pulse crops play in rotations in his arid part of the country, some of his management practices that he's adopted over the past 20 years of growing pulses, and some harvest and post-harvest considerations. To kick things off, though, I asked Terry to share some of what he's learned about growing pulse crops during his time as an extension agent. Well, you know, my, my previous career as an extension agent, you know, I worked with farmers and ranchers on agronomic and economic issues. A lot of farm program through USDA was pretty high priority because our prices were very low on commodities. And so we were searching for something that would help justify, if you will, the economics of farming, to be honest with you. Primarily, most regions like the rest of the area were, were crop fallow operations, meaning that they would idle up to as much as 50% of their acres. Some of that was driven by tradition. Some of it was driven by you know lack of moisture weed control, things like that. So there was trying to store moisture and also to control weeds and following farm programs because at that time there were like allotments that you had to follow in order to receive some of the program benefits, uh, the price support payments, for example. So anyway, the economics of it with low commodity prices and so on and the costs associated with fallow, a lot of the research programs through, uh, through the uh, Agricultural Research Service, Montana State University, North Dakota State University, even Saskagawn Food, because we're so close to Canada, they were showing that a lot of our uh, returns could be improved by utilizing those fallow acres. In other words, don't idle your land, put something on it to grow. It would help with erosion. It helped with economics. And so that's kind of what we were looking to do is try to at least try to recover what the costs would have been had we idled it versus not idling the land. And as it turned out, we started raising some of these crops on a continuous basis and finding out that we were returning just as much as what the wheat acres were producing or returning for us as far as economically. And so I'd like to think as an extension agent, I kind of helped lead that effort 
but we also have a lot of innovative producers in this part of the part of the world and so they kind of helped feed on that whole program and didn't take much convincing for them to uh to grasp onto those crop rotations that were actually very beneficial for both economics but also for some of the quality of our products so that being said we as a area have very little fallow anymore you know we were probably a 60 40 split you know where 60 percent of crops every year and 40 percent were idled in fallow and that was usually either by tillage methods or by chem fallow to try and control the, you know the the weeds throughout the summer to what we are today which is now probably 95 percent annually planted crops every year there's there's little or no fallow left in this whole region and that's a quite large area which is a big change the last as i said 15 to 25 years well so a couple questions on the development of these pulse crops number one is what have durham yields done throughout that time as you've made this switch from fallow to pulses have they stayed the same or have they actually improved as a result the yields of our durham which again is our, our probably our primary crop raised in in the county and they have actually improved both yield and quality uh the quality a lot of it because they're following a pulse crop and the pulse crops are legumes that you know generate uh, or or produce if you will residual nitrogen that the crops future crops can use so so i guess as a, as an individual and as an observation uh with other producers we've been able to observe literally higher yields and, and better quality crops like our durham uh uh, yields have, uh, I think, in general, long term, the yields were in the 20s, you know, the mid mid to high 20s. And now they're probably in the mid to high 30s over the last 20 years. And so it's really improved. And and again, quality is pretty obvious when you produce a, a Durham crop following a pulse crop, you almost always have increased yield and quality as opposed to continuous wheat, for example. And so better protein, better color. Durham has HVAC, which is hard vitreous amber color, which is a nice yellow color. It's almost always better. So from those standpoints, I guess the pulse crops have really fitted very well. And, and the markets have followed it as well. And what I mean by that is there's lots that we have here right in Plentywood, which is where I reside. Uh, there's a pulse processing facility, Columbia Grain actually has a pulse processing plant that's quite large and uh, and ships out uh, to uh, both foreign and domestic buyers. We also have quite a few Canadian firms that contract in this area as well. Because of our proximity, we can ship oh, probably to dozens of places up north, as well as our local, what I'll call domestic uh, outlets. Well, that's great. And, and it sounds like those have developed in lockstep with, with kind of the production in the area, right? They have, you know, and I think we were kind of late to the show. And what I mean by that is, you know, the Canadians is who kind of took the lead on a lot of this. A lot of the pulse crop production was was already in place for many decades before us Americans decided to jump on the bandwagon. And, and primarily because, if you recall, they were under a, a wheat board. You know, they had actually allotments and they, they had to follow the rules of the wheat board on barley and wheat production. And so they were not governed by uh, some of the rotational crops like the canolas, mustards, flax, and all those pulse crops we just mentioned. So those farmers, to survive, branched out into a lot of those crops and, and actually brought a lot of expertise back to us that we were able to follow initially. And since that time, of course, a lot of the research uh, here in the United States, primarily NDSU, uh, Washington, 
and uh, Montana have jumped on that bandwagon as well, as far as, you know, varietal development and that type of thing. So, uh, and agronomics associated with those. And that includes everything from weed control to variety development and, and those types of things. Right. And generally for you, you know, as a pea producer right now, what what are the biggest challenges or obstacles you're wrestling with? Well, you know, um, because we don't have a lot of moisture, you know, we don't have a lot of snow here. And when we do, it's kind of a dry snow. So our snow cover isn't very good in general. We, we, we had some spring snowstorms, so there's some delayed plantings. They're cool season crops. You know, all these crops we produce here in this area of the world, if you will, are cool season crops, at least the ones that do best. We don't have the corn and soybeans and that kind of thing that are warm season crops. So we have to take advantage of the cooler weather in the spring. One of our delays this year is we had a late snowstorm and a late rain that pushed us way out into May, late May even, for planting. And anytime you get that late, our yields begin to drop because of the hot weather in June and July. And so the earlier the better. In general, all those crops are very frost tolerant, so we can actually plant them and have them survive some cold snaps that come through in like, you know, April, May. So ideally, we'd be planting these crops in like the middle of April to the end of April to maybe the first or second week in May. This year, we were pushed back way into, and that's not necessarily myself, but for a lot of the producers around here, we're pushed way back into even early June to plant those crops. And they just don't perform as well because of the high temperatures. So that's one issue. Uh, weed control can be a problem because they're pretty sensitive to a lot of our herbicides and especially carryover herbicides from the wheat crop. So you have to be very careful about what herbicides and pesticides you use the previous year or years because they can leave a residual that will hurt those sensitive crops. And by hurt them, I mean stunting, you know, less production and that kind of thing. So, so that's kind of the main things I can think of at this point. Harvesting, we can talk about that in a minute. But as far as the actual production, we're reliant on whatever falls from the sky as far as rain. So timing is everything. And uh, high temperatures that bloom hurts anything. But it's really especially for like a lot of these pulse crops. If they get start getting high temperatures in the 90s when it's trying to bloom, for example, which right now most of their pulse crops are blooming. And so it's a terrible time to have it be hot because they'll start blasting or, you know, or sterilizing the, the flowers. Well, well, let's let's talk about harvest. You know, you've harvested a lot of acres of, of peas over the years and maybe some lentils and chickpeas as well. I'm not sure. But uh, what ha- what have been kind of the biggest lessons you've learned, the biggest uh, advancements in, in the way you you harvest pulse crops? Well, I, when, when harvesting these pulse crops, there's very serious steps that have to be taken. And one of the main ones is literally trying to select a variety that's going to stand up. You know, it isn't going to fall over quite as readily. And there's varieties. Some some are good. Some are not so good. And farmers kind of figure those out and which ones could do the best for them performance-wise, but yet still agronomically not be difficult to harvest. Because the harvest operation, we're cutting very low to the ground. And we live in rock country. We have lots of rocks out there. So there's a lot of rock picking going on, you know, ahead of, ahead of the time. Picking and choosing acres that are more conducive to flatter for example not so much rolling hills and rocks and things like that almost every acre is rolled so these land rollers and, and the whole function of a land roller you know you've probably seen them before but they, what they do is they run across the ground and they punch the rocks in okay the whole idea is to punch the rocks down so that when you do harvest low to the ground you don't pick them up and run them through the combines and so that's probably what step number one is is to have a roller and that's usually done either right after seeding like immediately after seeding or it's done when the crop is up. But yet uh, a furrow drill, not everybody uses a furrow drill. 
a furrow meaning leaving literally a furrow versus a no-till drill, which is more like a disc that just seeds flat. It leaves the ground flat behind it. So the challenge with that is, is uh, if it's powdery dry, you have erosion. So, so harvest starts with the rotation. You know, the previous crop usually is, a, is like a durum crop, so you're planting into durum stubble. So that kind of helps with erosion and the rolling process. But the rolling basically primarily, again, is just to knock the rocks into the ground so it's relatively smooth when you run your combine over it at harvest time. Well, real quick question on that is, uh, have you noticed any, any connection between the amount of stubble that you're able to leave on there and how much the, the peas can, can get up off the ground a little bit? I mean, do they use it as sort of an anchor? Does there, is there any connection to that at all? Well, I think, I think the more residue out there, it prevents uh, erosion. But it also creates a little microclimate, little environment for them to grow up into. I prefer a furrow drill. It leaves a V, you know, when you plant it, because I think it also allows that, that what I just described, a little microclimate when you grow up on this double. Peas, uh, these, these varieties have tendrils that tie them together, you know, so, that, so they don't lay flat in the ground. And so that helps to hold them upright as well. So I, I guess the, in my mind, the more stubble, the better to try and hold them up. And peas are not like soybeans, you know, they, they'll develop pods right on the ground. Okay. I mean, really low. Peas, they don't really develop any pods until they're about uh, six, eight inches off the ground. So we don't have to cut flat, flat on the ground, although a lot of guys do. But you, you wouldn't have to. If you cut like a four to six inch height, you'll get the majority of the pods with peas. So, so it's not completely barren you know, when, when you're done harvesting. Lentils are a different story. Lentils grow very short in stature to begin with. They're probably only, oh, 10, 12 inches high at the most. Well, some varieties are more, but by the time they dry down, when they dry down, they're very short. And so they usually use those flex heads and put it right on the ground. It's kind of a, doesn't leave much residue behind the combine. Well, on the rolling itself, it took, I know I'm jumping around here a little bit, but to, have you changed the way you do the rolling at all that you found works best for you in terms of timing or anything like that? In our particular case, we use a furrow drill. We're almost always seeding into or always seeding into stubble. So we uh, roll immediately after planting. We do not wait till it's up and growing. And, and there's several reasons for that because, you know, usually at planting time, the ground is a little bit softer. So the rocks can be pushed in. And with a furrow drill, it just rides on top of the furrow. It doesn't bury it. It doesn't go down into the lower parts of, of the uh, furrow. We prefer to do that right after seeding. The uh, wheat stubble provides a cushion, if you will. So the soil doesn't fill in the gap or fill in the furrow. So now you're seeded three inches deep instead of an inch, for example. So that's, that's kind of the reasons that we do it. Guys have different, different thought processes. I don't like to do it once it's up because I feel when a plant is up, then you risk... Uh, Burying it, bending it off, over, breaking it. Some people have the theory that stressing a plant is good for it. And I, and I, I don't go with that theory. <laughs> and by stressing, I mean, you know, bending it over and causing, you know, and I just don't think that's a good idea. And the, the last thing is, is uh, if it's a dewy, wet morning, for example, then you actually can smear the plants and you collect uh, spores from fungus and it can spread it with the, the roller to all the plants, you know, because you're rolling over all of them. So there's lots of reasons, I guess, that, you know, different, different, uh, oh, I don't know, thought processes, theories, whatever that producers have. But in my own case, I prefer to roll immediately after planting. Okay. That makes sense. And then uh, let's, let's jump back to when you were talking about kind of the headers. What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I, I mentioned that like 
peas, for example, you know, you know, we have our straight rigid heads, we have the flex heads. And I guess the flex heads are primarily used for sure on the chickpeas and lentils. They're probably, in my mind, optional on the peas because peas are a higher growth. If they're laid over from wind, heavy rain, something like that, then a flex head would probably be preferred because they have the ability to cut really low. And that's an added expense because these flex heads are not cheap, you know. You guys used to get them in from the Midwest, you know, the soybean ones that were wore out. They'd kind of go down there and buy them and bring them up here and sell them for you know, a fraction of what a new one would cost. But they, they found out that they were wore out too, <laughs> okay? They might look real pretty, but they were wore out. So most guys have gone, they don't do that anymore. They buy some nice nice ones, either brand new or or ones that are, you know, good used ones that they can use on those acres. Pulse crops are used in rotation. I guess we didn't talk about that, but the main reason we do them in the first place is to avoid continuous wheat, which can have its own problems of diseases and root rods and, and uh, fungal diseases, uh, leaf diseases, things like that, as well as the nitrogen, lack of nitrogen uh, requirement, you know, because as, as you probably are realized that, you know, most of our nitrogen costs are very high the last several years. So when you plant a legume, you inoculate them with a rhizobia bacteria that helps fix their own nitrogen. So you don't have to use any fertilizer except for maybe a starter fertilizer or phosphorus. Even that is optional for some producers. But they use it for rotations because of what I said earlier about raising better quality wheat crops following them. So you avoid the fertilizer costs. You, you create a rotation that's advantageous to our wheat crops. And uh, it, it just isn't as expensive to raise as opposed to spending $50, $60 an acre on fertilizer. So that's kind of one reason for the rotation in the first place. And, and I, I mentioned to you earlier about eliminating fallow operations from all these farms. So it created an opportunity to be a cash crop rather than a negative of having to idle, idle acres. So we deviate a lot from the flex heads there. But I guess the main thing the flex heads do for, for people is allow them to conduct a harvest and, and, and get all the grain or all the, the lentils and peas that, that uh, are low growing. And that's the reason they use it. And, and, and again, it, it's, it's the rotation is the main reason that guys are doing, raising these crops in the first place. Right. And are you, uh, are you using any sort of harvest aids or how do you approach that? Actually, in, in our case, most of them let them, with the exception of the lentils, a lot of guys are using harvest aids like the desiccants. There's several out there, but, but basically once they hit a certain point where they've dried down to the point where there's still high, higher moisture, They'll, they'll spray it with a desiccant to aid with the harvest. And that's primarily on the lentils. The peas, we let dry that naturally. They'll drop down. Most of the newer varieties aren't as shatter prone as some of the older ones used to be. So, so what they can do is straight cut them, usually at a higher moisture. And I'm thinking of peas like 15, 16, 17 moisture. And then they'll put them in aeration bins, dryer bins. And it's just natural air, not heat. They'll just turn the fans on and it will actually dry them down the rest of the way down to a safe storage level of 13, 14%. So it helps by cutting them a little bit on the wet side. And, I, and again, I'm talking about peas. Then that allows that to be dried down to a safe storage. That, and that eliminates the need for a desiccant on peas. Lentils, a little different story, especially if you're on uneven ground, you know, hills and valleys and stuff, you know, you'll have quite green areas in, in the low swales, but yet really dry on the hilltops, you know. So, so they'll even it out by spraying a desiccant and then just straight cutting it. Chickpeas, same way. The desiccants are, are kind of hit and miss depending on, on the, the maturity. But farmers will use it on, on chickpeas as well. I don't know if I answered your question about harvesting so much. Um, 
Well, that's what that's that was just the next thing I was going to ask you is, you know, two different directions we can go. We can talk about sort of, you know, from a farmer standpoint, harvest logistics and and considerations there, or also from just a pulse crop standpoint, like making sure that you're harvesting for the highest possible quality as well. You know, quality considerations. I don't know which direction would you like to go next? Well, uh, we can talk about uh, some of the harvesting considerations, I guess, as far as storage you know i started to mention that earlier and i I kind of drifted a little bit but a lot of the farms here i said to you earlier i've gotten bigger but a lot of the old storage and i'm gonna call it old your small two thousand to three thousand bushel steel bins that we all grew up with you know the little flat bottom you know storage ones are slowly disappearing okay most farms now have these uh hopper bottom bins you know you've seen the brain max freezing i can think of a lot of them there's just a whole bunch of these ones, and basically they're three to four to five thousand bushel hopper bins, steel hopper bins with a cone. And uh, once again, that helps with labor. By the way, you don't have to shovel out a bin anymore. You pull a lever, and it dumps out the bottom. A lot of those have aeration in them, so so we can turn fans on to help dry out these commodities. So a lot of bins. That's the hopper bins, but there are a lot of big big storage bins, anywhere from ten thousand to as much as fifty thousand bins, large steel bins with full floor aeration have gone in in the last 10 years or so, or or probably 15. So our storage capacity here, because the elevators can't take it. What I mean by that, like in the Midwest, you know, a lot of times they'll, farmers will harvest their grain, haul it in the elevators, done. They don't store it in the farm. Well, we store it in the farm as much as possible because the elevators just can't physically take it. Prices might not be as good as we think they should be at harvest time. So there's a lot of on-farm storage on the typical farm. Our operation has about 250,000 bushels of storage that we have access to. And then we also have, uh, have you ever seen these these grain bags that uh, farmers put out in the field? You know, the white tubes, you know, that they can hold anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 bushels. We actually utilize that as well on our farm. We have a a bagger, it's called. And we'll, we'll put out anywhere from three or four bags to as many as 20 a year. In addition to our farm storage. And you put peas in there as well, or is that just for the Durham? Typically like to do it just for the Durham, but I do have I do have neighbors who have put peas in, lentils. I, I don't like to because, again, if there's any issues with moisture or so on in those bags, then you have some trouble. But uh, we haven't had any major issues with them yet. We've had it for about five, six years and haven't had any real major problem. There's always minor ones, but nothing real major. But that, that creates an option for a lot of storage that uh, is not permanent. You know, it's, it's not permanent storage like, it's like investing in a steel bin, you know. So it, it kind of helps to, to uh, alleviate any storage issues. And I guess my one comment on the use of those bags is that probably the reason you had to use a bag in the first place is you had a good crop, okay? So you, so you had, I won't call it surplus, but surplus to your operation, more than you normally produce. And so you have a place to put it. And that's usually a good thing, okay? Yeah. So, so that's kind of my thought there. So that was the storage. And I guess as far as, as far as the harvesting process, there's some timing issues. You, it's, it's like any crop. You don't want it to get heavily rained on, uh, you know, cause it can lodge, it can, uh, it can shatter. So there's some timing issues. If it's ripe, you've got to be ready to go, you know? And I think that's, that's one of the biggest thing uh, on some of these operations is they've geared their machinery up to address that, to have enough uh, capacity, if you will, to get it off in a timely fashion. The one thing I have noticed the last probably two to three years here in this region, a lot of custom cutters come up and help. So a farmer here might have a combine or two 
and he'll get a good start with his operation and then he'll find that you know i i better get help so they'll bring as again the larger they get the more help they need so custom cutters come in and I, I, like i say last year was probably the most i've ever seen in my life there's lots of custom cutters come here and they will cut those peas those lentils you know and help so they're the combines that are getting beat up <laughs> okay so that that's another reason guys do it too they turn them loose on it so they don't beat their combines silly <laughs> and, and they need the help too i mean they need the help they bring bodies with them they bring trucks they bring men to run the trucks and combines so that helps alleviate some of that labor issue i just talked about earlier too and i i predict that that's going to be more more common as the years go by well especially if you don't get those those uh young guys we talked about that are coming back and even if they do come back they need help because they need bodies so no, I was going to ask, what about uh, the, the marketing program with the peas versus the Durham? Do you market them kind of in similar ways or do you try to get more forward contracted of peas, for example, or is that different? I, I'm used to the marketing of wheat, corn, soybeans, that sort of thing. It used to be what I did, but I'm curious if these pulses from a farmer standpoint, you look at the marketing a little different. Let me take, let me talk about Durham, Durham first, and then, then that'll lead right into the pulse crops. The Durham, very few people do forward contracting on Durham of any sort here. There's some will, but the reason they don't is the uncertainty associated with the production and quality. You know, I might contract number one Durham wheat for, I'll just give you an example, $8 a bushel. But that means I have to deliver number one $8 Durham, and there's no act of God. You have to deliver. And so a lot of guys are very reluctant to do any major forward contracting, maybe a month in advance, but they won't do it like, like say in January, February, they won't do it. Contrast that with peas and lentils. Almost all contracts that are offered by our local or regional buyers are act of God contracts. And they'll, they'll say, we'll buy the first 10 bushels or 15 bushels an acre of your production for eight bucks a bushel or nine bucks a bushel, 10 bucks a bushel, whatever it is. And with act of God. So if you don't raise it, you don't have to deliver. And I know you're familiar with that. So there's quite a few people who will do those those uh, forward contracts on peas and lentils. Okay, they'll they'll do it. But again, it's usually just on the first percentage of production. Maybe the first. If if I think my normal yield is 35 bushels an acre, I'll do 15 because that's all they'll do is 15. And I did do that this year. I do have some uh, a forward contract on my peas. I did not raise any lentils this year or chickpeas, just strictly in peas on our operation and it, and it represents about 25 to 30 percent of our acres are into peas uh, and that's i think that's pretty typical most guys try to do like a two-thirds one-third rotation which means they'll plant durham two years in a row and then follow it up with one of these pulse crops more and more people are trying to work in some of the oil seeds like canola or flax into that rotation too but but still pulse crops is by far the the largest all right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Growing Pulse Crops. Thank you very much to Terry Onvik for being on the show. I really appreciated getting some of his perspective from someone who's been farming for decades, but also spent over 30 years as an extension agent. Thanks again to Terry. Make sure you're a subscriber to this show so you don't miss our next upcoming episode, our final episode of season four, featuring plant pathologist Dr. Bob Harvison and farmer Steve Tucker talking about the growth and opportunity for more pulse crops in Nebraska. We can grow mung beans. I mean, there's different aspects of these different things that we can do. What does the market need? And so I just had a conversation with a company that's looking for lupins. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of lupins before. And so there are more various different kinds of pulse crops that who knows what else is out there, what people are looking for to 
utilize in food products. I think that it's just ever changing quickly and uh, people are just looking for different things all the time. Again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure the information stays relevant to you. If you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag Growing Pulse Crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.